Thanks a lot. It's good to be here. Um, I'm going to make a disclaimer right now. I, I'm a I'm a basketball freak. By the way, I, I know how to like empty a room. I mean, this last session, all of a sudden, everybody's got to go to the airport, and they heard that I was speaking or something. But uh, I'm a basketball freak. I played in college, coached college, and so I, I, I get to a place where there's ESPN. I mean, I have a hard time going to bed. So last night, I, I watched a, a West Coast game. Um, I'm from Spokane. And uh, any basketball fans in the crowd? Uh, you know, the world power Gonzaga Bulldogs uh, played last night for the conference championship, which the game started at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So uh, I owed it to my Zags to stay up and watch it. So if I become incoherent at some point in this talk, it's because I actually turned the TV off at 2, it went into overtime, and I couldn't stop. And, you know, so you can see it. Check it out. I, I, I uh, Facebooked it, too like cheering for the Zags because they won their 11th straight conference championship. It's not a big deal, I know, for you. It's the only pro team in Spokane. So um, let me tell you just briefly who I am. I, I've been a pastor for 27 years. And uh, for 20 of those years, it was in a church plant in, in Spokane. And it's a cool church. It's uh, right across the street from Gonzaga, actually. We're the closest Protestant church to the, the campus. And uh, it's, it's really a college church. There's about 800 college students that go. And uh, so my whole life is around people that are uh, my children's age. And um, so, so that's kind of my history. I, I kind of counted up the number of sermons that I've given. I think it was like 1,800 or something. I should be much better at talking as much as I've talked over the years. Uh, here's another bit for, that you need to know about me, though. I've been married for 30 years in June, which is applaudable. I mean, seriously. How many people have been married 30 years? Anybody else in the room that far, that long? couple? High five right here. Nice. So, um, and I have three children. I have a 26-year-old son uh, who's an artist. I have a 24-year-old daughter who's an artist. And I have a nine-year-old. Uh, who, who is a nine-year-old. <laughs> same womb, same everything. I mean, I mean, we just had a 15-year break, and, and we try not to use the words like surprise or mistake. He's, he's a gift. His name is Trey, the three-pointer. We... <laughs> this summer, uh, I had one of the grandest, most... Beautiful moments of my life happened, though. And uh, those of you who are dads with daughters, I got the amazing privilege of walking my daughter down an aisle and giving her away to another man. <sighs> top, top three event in my life. I mean, it was for an extrovert like me, it's kind of like, you can't imagine a better event. I mean, I love the guy. I love my daughter. Um, all of our favorite people in the world show up, and so it's this, it's this wonderful event. After the wedding, of course, there's the reception, and uh, in the reception, there's dancing and so forth. And my, older, my son, my oldest son, is a, is a blues musician, musician, and so his band was playing. There's like this whole crowd of people that I love dancing. And I look out on the dance floor, and there's my nine-year-old. 
And listen, he, I don't know where he got this, but he's out there doing pelvic thrusts. You know? And I, I, I go, Trey, get over here. And I, I say, Trey, you, this is a quote. You can't thrust your junk at people like that. <laughs> okay, Dad, I got it. He goes back out. And, uh, and it's so funny, being, I'm 52, I have a, 20, or a nine-year-old, uh, he just went through the sex ed thing at school, he called me afterwards, two nights ago, and he says, Dad, it's just so creepy, he said, they, they kept singing this song, it's just around the bend, it's just around the bend, <laughs> and then there, he said there was this dancing box with a penis in it, he says, it was so weird, I, I, I don't want to go to school anymore, <laughs> I'm going, oh man, what am I doing? With a nine-year-old right now. So, uh, back to the reception. Everybody's dancing. Trey, I give him the instruction. No more thrusting. He goes back out, and honestly, it was such a joyful moment. Literally, for the next 45 minutes, he danced around in this crowd. And, and you know what? He did not care who else was in the room. He was the king of the dance floor. And, and as a dad, I'm just watching my kid, my son's playing, my daughter's. I mean, it, it was just fantastic. But one of the things I noticed for Trey, he really didn't care if anybody was there or not. And I believe that that's oftentimes what happens in our Christian life is we dance alone. We do a lot of alone dancing. And when we talk about spiritual formation, Really, we can talk about personal disciplines, and I'm, everybody's alluded to stuff, and, and all of us have to put disciplines in our life that work for us, disciplines of engagement, disciplines of abstinence. But what I want to talk about just for a few minutes are um, four communal disciplines. We've talked about the perichoresis, the, the community of God, the, the very essence of God is communal. We, we sh- it shouldn't surprise us to think that we are going to be transformed in community, so th- this is just from my years of trying to work this out. Uh, it might help, it might not, but here are four different communities that I'm a part of. The first one is a, uh, is a community, and I'm going to call it a community of recalibration. We could call it a community of discernment if we like, but really what we're talking about, what I'm talking about, is an opportunity for me to sit under the Word of God. I need to hear the Word of God. And if your church is really young, you've already had pushback about the church, right? And particularly about the teaching part. But I, I went through a transition this last, about a year and a half ago, after planting this church and pastoring it for about 18 years, I stepped out of that but stayed in the church. Now, I've been the talker a long time. The main talker. I was a senior pastor, Right? So I talked every week, maybe twice a week. And then I went from there to sitting and listening to other people. And I can remember the first time I, I, I sat there, I had my arms... Now, I, I have a natural repose like I'm mad. You maybe have thought I've been mad the whole time. You know what a natural... What's your face do when you're not doing anything else? This is mine. I'm not, I'm not mad. That's just my face. So, so I'm sitting there with my arms like this and, and, and my face going like this. Now, everybody in the church is looking at me. 
You know, like, he hates these guys. Really what was going on is I was going through a process of grief. Of letting go. And over time, I'm just going to confess this to you, over time, right then I had this inner grinding that was going on where I had to surrender stuff. But over time what happened was I became a receiver. And I could sit there and, and actually listen and hear the Holy Spirit's voice. And, and here's why I say it has to be a recalibration community. It's because everywhere else in our world we get a different story. We get a different story about the way life should be. And only when we come and hear the word of God taught do we hear the story of the kingdom. And it's like my life's stretched over this way or this way. And I hear the story of God. And it's like, okay, I get get pulled back in. I go, yeah, that's right. That is what I'm about. I don't know if you feel that that drift that happens. But sitting under the word, under under the, the story of God, recalibrates us to that story. I love Brueggemann. He talks about in his book, uh, Finally Comes the Poet. He talks about this event of preaching. And he says there's four elements. There's the text. And he says we have to fight becoming familiar with the text. Do you know what I'm saying when I say that? Oftentimes we hear the word of God and we just go, yeah, I've already heard that. In fact, I've read it a bunch of times. I've heard it taught on. So whatever. And so it becomes familiar. So we don't listen with an open heart. Then he says, there are the baptized, the people that come in with weary hearts that have been drawn away by other stories. And then he says, there's also the, the particular occasion. Whenever the word of God is communicated, it has a particular context. I mean, in any t- typical room, there's, there's 50 things going on in people's lives, and the Holy Spirit's doing different things in that context, right? And here's the last thing he says. When the story is told... There is the, the, the new story of life once again to the weary baptized. And that's what happens to our lives when we hear the word of God. I, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter who's teaching. If you have your heart right, you can receive. This is something I've done. I get my moleskin, sorry. Moleskins take a beating these days for some reason. And I, I read Brueggemann's prayers as kind of a discipline. And when someone's teaching, I try to write one of those prayers based upon what I'm hearing the Holy Spirit teach. It's, it's just a discipline that I do so I can listen well. So that's one. Uh, I think we have to have a, a, this recalibrating community. A second community is a confessional community. Every one of you need to be, and I'm going to be pushy here, every one of you need a, a community where you can be completely honest. I think it was you, Todd, talking about how do you finish strong well, one of the reasons people don't finish strong is they don't have anybody they can be completely honest with. So they find themselves bound up over so many years, and then they just spill over into some nutty thing. And it looks like it's an eruption, but the reality has been going on forever. So um, 17 years ago, I, uh, uh, in fact, Shan, the guy that teaches in the PhD program that, that Mary Kate was a part of, him and I started meeting with a couple other guys and uh, we formed a confessional community. And, and this is a, an adult group. I think I can be honest. We, we asked each other three questions. Uh, did you masturbate last week? Did you look at any naked women? Okay, that's the only two questions we asked for a while. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're broken. We're just messed up, and we want to stand straight up and not be ashamed, Right? 
third question, we started realizing, well, those are pretty negative, and they're just pushing stuff out. What, what our ultimate goal was is to honor our wives. So the third question is, um, what have you done in the last week that created beauty in your relationship with your wife? Third question, right? Now, here's what happened. Over time, we realized that that wasn't enough either because we needed to be honest. But for me, and I'm not pushing this on anyone, but I, what I started doing, I started including my wife in my confessional circle. I included Robbie. That's her name. I'm Rob, Robbie. In that circle, which you know what it did? I don't know you. I'm Rob. Right? If we're in this confession, and I say, yeah, I really stumble or whatever, he goes, yeah, you're messed up, so am I. Blah. But when I say, Robbie, I, I've, I've dishonored you. The whole thing changed. It went from $5 on the table to a million dollars on the table. And so my question is, who do you have that you can be completely honest with? Do you have somebody? If you don't, what's happening is, is you're pushing stuff back into the dark. And we don't get better in the dark. We don't deal with our brokenness in the dark. We deal with it in the light. Third community. Uh, I'm going to call it, and I don't have a, a good name for this, but I'm going to call it my wine community. I don't know, are you guys a teetotaler group? I'm just joking. Yeah, wine. W-I-N. Yeah, not wine. <laughs> W-I-N-E. Um, I could call it an exaltation group, maybe, or something. But this is the type of group it is. By the way, Joseph Meyer says we need different types of groups. This group is where I don't have to be anybody. I don't have to be a pastor. I don't have to be a leader. I'm just Rob, and I'm that person, and I'm with other people. And I, I have that group where uh, two other couples and a single gal, we meet every Monday night, we break out the wine, we make good food, we laugh. We might even pray, but it's not a part of the agenda. It's really just to be us. Do you have a place where you're not on on, well, yeah, I should say, a place where you're not on. I think it was Nowen that said, we are not the sum total of what we produce. If you are not in some community where you're not producing something, I think you're missing a, a very big deal when it comes to spiritual formation. Okay, the fourth community is this. Uh, I'm going to call it a missional community, and, you know, missional, what does that mean? It's like the word, uh, anymore means nothing, it means everything. When I say it, it means a community that is engaged culture um, with the kingdom of God. I had the opportunity to, uh, in, my, in a doctoral program I was in to study with a bunch of people who were friends with Leslie Newbegin. I, I took a class in London called Following the Newbegin Trail. It was great. One of the key things that Newbegin said, uh, I think, that helps us understand how to engage Western culture, he says, how can it be that a man hanging on a cross could be the last word in human affairs? How can this actually be communicated? And his answer is this. The only way it can be communicated, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, is a community of people who live and believe and live this story. And I truly believe that. We're all supposed to be involved in mission, Individually, 
But we're also supposed to be involved in mission, engaging the world communally. And so I want to be a part of a group of people that step toward the poor, that, that lean into brokenness, that declare the gospel to the world, to reach out to the asylum seeker, the refugee. I mean, fill in the blank. I want to be a part of a people who are going that direction. And I'll tell you why. If, if we really believe that God is a missionary God and we're supposed to follow him, then it makes sense that our lives are going to be formed toward him as we follow him into that activity. Raise your hand if you've ever taken a short-term mission trip, a bunch of people on a short-term mission trip. Think about what happens when you do, do an out-of-context learning. When you're actually, you move people into a world that's not their culture and you do aggressive activism. What happens is there's massive change. You can do two years of teaching and not achieve what you can do in a week in the Dominican Republic in a Haitian refugee bate. Because all of a sudden, all of these things are acute. I think that's one of the places that spiritual formation happens. Susan Hope, in her book, I think it's called Mission-Shaped uh, Spirituality, she says, to actually do spirituality, you have to do two things. You have to cross a boundary, and you have to take a risk. What happens, and why does spirituality happen when you cross a boundary and take a risk? Why? What happens? You become vulnerable. You step out of your world of control. And so I really believe that when we engage in mission communally, that's what happens. That's one of the things that transpires in our life is we have this transformation happen toward the world. So for me, those are, those are four communal pieces that have helped me make it up to this point. I mean, pray for me. I'm a mess. You know, I'm still on journey. And, uh, but these are things I've put into my life, and I think they're helpful. So thank you. That's it. kind of nice being a little smaller group. It's kind of like the first day. So I like it. And, uh, and, and we've heard a lot of stuff. We really have. Um, so at the end here, I, I just want to talk to you uh, as a mother. Um, I, I've actually, this summer, um, my husband and I are going to celebrate our 40th anniversary. God is great and God is good. Uh, I love my man, and he's been so good to me and faithful to me over the years. And we've been through it together, and we fought together, and uh, just uh, come to really appreciate each other and know each other in a very deep, profound way. So I'm looking forward to going home today and seeing my man and my puppy. Uh, um, but what I want to do is, um, as I was thinking about it, is because, honestly, Bruce, is he here? Ock. We have the same Holy Spirit wavelength. I mean, we even, I even had the same stats as he did in the same two points. So, love you, brother. I, I, don't, I think the Holy Spirit just wanted us to bookend this. Wanted us to bookend this. And so I, I appreciate the eloquent way that you set that up and all the things. Norton, I just loved what you had to say about team ministry. That's what I did, you know, the two churches, and uh, it was just spot on. I really appreciated it. And Sid, thank you for your, vul- your vulnerability and your honestness. And 
um, you're sharing your journey and being faithful to that, especially in a place of hurting. And then who was after that? Oh, yeah, Todd. Todd's my friend. <laughs> he brought me here, and he's taken me back. So thank you, Todd. Thank you for sharing yours, too, and, and Bob for what you had to say. So I just want to talk just briefly about, about um, as a mother. And um, I didn't have a, a, a healthy mother. My mother was, I, I already told you this, my mother was uh, seriously, serious personality disorder and seriously, seriously messed up. Uh, so when, uh, when I, um, uh, I, and I didn't really understand this, you, you, you just know what you have. All you do is know what you have, and what you have is what you cling to. And that's one of the reasons why we need to cling to a very big God and not to the little things that we have and we're, so, we're used to because sometimes those things are a little bit twisted or sometimes they're a little bit under in the cupboard and they're not out in the light like they need to be. And sometimes there's new things we didn't even imagine. And so uh, with, this, with this mother, when she, when she left, I was very, very sad because the, I, I didn't know anything different. And I remember praying then. Every, you know, just praying, God, I want a mother. I, I was, you know... I always kind of believed in God, but didn't really have much of a relationship with God. But I did pray that God would bring me mother, and I would just pray and pray and pray. And, and I remember in high school, it was so tough. I mean, I was so gangly and awkward and ugly. I had, my face was all broken out, and they, some kids called me pimple pickle. And I had straight hair and you know, I, and I didn't know how to act, I didn't know how to be, and I was clumsy, I was always picked last, and it, it was painful, and I would cry, and I thought, you know, if I had a mother, you know, it would all be fine, I, uh, it, you know, that's what I needed, a mother, and the Lord eventually answered that prayer for me, and gave me, when I was in college, gave me my stepmom, who then became my real mother, I mean, in every way, she redeemed for me what it meant to be what mother was. But I didn't really know. I honestly didn't really know what it was to be a mother until I became a mother. And it's the same thing with us. It's, it, it, you really can talk and talk and talk about all this stuff, but until you do it, it's really just a lot of talk. And it sort of sticks a little bit, but you go out in the wind and it kind of blows off. You have to do it. And I remember um, when my daughter was born, and um, I, didn't know, I didn't know anything about this stuff, you know. Um, I, I taught right all the way up. I was teaching, and a week later, um, she was, I went into labor, and, and, and she was born. I'm, I'm in the hospital, and I'm thinking, wow, they, they didn't tell me it was going to be like this. I don't want to do this. Um, and, and, then, and then she was born, and I remember getting up soon after, you know, back in my room, and getting up, and that's when they kept the babies apart, and I went down to the window, and I looked in, and I saw her in, there, in that bed, and something, something tipped over in me. So I, I don't know how else to explain it, but it's like I was living here, and it just got flipped over, and I was living here. And I saw, I, I didn't know, I, I didn't see, my, my whole being knew what it was to be a mother. Knew what it was to be a mother. 
And that's what spiritual formation, when we take time to be with God, there's that time where we get tipped over into this other universe. So much what you all have been saying about submission is a big piece of that because what we do is we just hang on to what we know. And when we give God a chance to sort of break into our world and speak to us and give space for that and community for that, what ha- it, it, we just get, we get tipped over. We get tipped over. And I loved that baby girl. I loved her with such a profound connection of love. And then the other thing that came up in me was, why didn't my mother love me like that? And then I understood what kind of mother I had. I didn't know. I was 20 years old. I didn't know. And then I knew what kind of mother I had. And that began my journey of health and my journey of trying to sort this out. And I became... a I became, uh, I, I was telling some guys who was uh, visiting with Emil that I became a rabid mother. I mean, I was like, <laughs> I was really into being a mother. <laughs> I mean, I made hot breakfast every day, and we had devotions around the table, and we prayed. Uh, we, I packed their little lunches, and I had a hot dinner at night for my kids, and, and I, I went into their bedrooms at night, and I listened to them talk to me, and the, all the things they would tell me, and we would kneel by their little beds, and I would pray for them, and I wanted to be for them what I didn't have for me. I didn't want them to want for any of that, and that's the same thing that God wants for you. God is that same kind of rabid mother. God wants to show up in the morning and give you a hot meal. God wants to pack you this great little lunch that's going to take you through the day. And at the end of the day, God wants to sit and throw another banquet for you and fill you up. And when you lay down in your bed, God wants to whisper in your ear love and prayers and adoration and hear the stories on your heart. That's what God wants to do for you. And the only way, only way, boys and girls... (laughs) The only way that can happen is if we come to the table. We have to come to the table. We have to be in our little beds, and we have to come to the table. And that's all it is. And I think uh, uh, we make it out to be something we have to accomplish and do in order to make us better persons so we can be what God wants us to be. And it's not that at all. God just wants to be with us with us. God wants to tip tables for us. God wants to feed us exotic things we never imagined. God wants to talk through with us that hard thing that happened that we were hurt and disappointed about. God wants to heal your soul. God wants to make you strong. God knows you need sleep. God knows you need food. God knows you need space. Those are all of the things that God wants to provide. The only thing you have to do is show up in your little bed and show up at the table. And how do we do that? Then we, you know, you have to do this daily. I am not going to sugarcoat this. You are in the hardest business, just like he said. Just like he said, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. I, I thought planning a church was like being a mother. I mean, <laughs> some of the challenges it has. So I think being a mother is challenging too. But it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. 
And so we have to daily be getting our food from the Lord and sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to the Lord's word and creating space for the Lord to love on us. Daily we have to, I don't know, I don't care how you do it. I don't care if you're a morning person, a night person, mid-afternoon person, Starbucks, sit in the Starbucks person, run around the block person, take a walk in the park person. I don't care what kind of person you are. You know that this is your time with God. You know that this is your coming to the table, your time with God. When you get up in the morning, a mindfulness about God being with you, and then sometime daily during your day where you are taking time to be with God. And that often means being with other people. All of these communities that that Bob just talked to us about, all of those kinds of communities are essential. That's part of the feeding in the new life. So you have to do this daily. You also have to do this uh, weekly Sabbath, that I am not, you know, I'm sorry. It's a sin. I'm looking you in the face as a mother, and I'm telling you, it's a sin to work 24-7. That is not how God created the universe. God created the universe for morning, for evening, for rest. That once a week, we should rest. We sh- and I don't, and again, I can't explain how that should look to you. I don't know what your schedule is like. A Sabbath is a day that you don't do the work that you've been called to do. But it's the day that you do the things that renew you and fresh you, hanging out with a friend, playing with your kids. For me, I mean, I like putzing around in my house. So I love just putzing around in my house. That's kind of Sabbath filling for me. That might be work for you, so don't do it. But you really do. When I go home at night, I mean, I've been in this business for, I don't know, you know, a long time. And I do a lot of things. I mean, I write, I speak, I teach. I'm the director of strategic planning for the university. Uh, I'm the director of the hybrid learning program in the seminary. I know, it's crazy. But you know, I don't answer my phone after 7 o'clock at night. I don't. Of course, my husband keeps his on in case the kids call. Because I answer the phone when the kids call. And I'm not saying you have to do it like this, but there has to be some way where you have to turn off your life and create more space in just a few minutes during the day for God. You need a weekly Sabbath. I guarantee it will make a, a huge difference in your ministry in your life. And it models for the church one of the most formative experiences that you can do is show how to take time off from the life that consumes us and proportion some back to God just to be with God and with good people that you love. And so I'm challenging you. This is not easy to do. And I know there are seasons. I'm I'm not rigid here. I know there are seasons where you are just washed over with events of life. But you come back to that rhythm where some way you take a Sabbath to the Lord. And then the, and then the other thing I want to suggest is that you take a week Sabbath away a year. A week a year. A week a year. Where you go to some kind of a retreat center and you can go with some buddies, that would be great. A a few really close friends. You just go to that retreat center and you just let the Lord completely rest your body. Rest your body. 
Rest your heart, rest your mind. Where you are constantly giving up, relinquishing up to God. That is that relinquishment that we do. Uh, you have to work through forgiveness issues. This is a big thing I find in the church, is all of the heart, hurtful things that happen to you through ministry. And you need space to sort of get that up out of you and relinquish that to God. And so I, I just wanted to, as a mother... To, to challenge you, and if, if I were your mother, I'd you know, want to sit down with every one of you and talk to you personally about this and want to work through with each and every one of you. How are you creating time in your little bed and with your meals, that space for God? Who, who are your friends? Are you taking a day off, a week? Are you taking it off? I wish I could do that for you. I'm just going to ask that the Holy Spirit do that for you. And not, not for shame or judgment. It's, you start where you are. You start where you are. But for your life. For your well-being. Because that is the key to enduring in ministry for 20 years. That is the key. The thing that kills ministry is burnout and stress and just worn out, plain empty. There's been no food for years. So I have a little... Um, I have a little prayer for you. Um, it's kind of like, it's a warrior's prayer because I feel like a warrior mother. And it's a Celtic's warrior's prayer. And, we're, and what, what you do with this prayer is you stand, uh, it's, it, the warrior prepares himself or herself for battle because we are in a great cosmic battle for the lives and souls, for ourselves, for our families, for our communities. So you stand in the center and you, you draw a circle Draw this imaginary circle. And, uh, and then you say the prayer for each of the primary compass points. And after saying the prayer, it's believed that you're sort of, you're, the sacred space follows with you into your day. And that's what I'm inviting you to, is the challenge of finding sacred space in your life and finding a way to make it refreshing to you. Now, we're not going to be able to uh, actually turn because the, the words are up here, but we'll make the circle... And then uh, we'll, we'll do the compass and, you know, we can point or something. And uh, then we're going to say it twice, one for I and one for you, for we, because we are in this together. We need each other. We need family in order to make this work. So please stand. So we're going to draw a circle, and I want you to draw a circle. This sacred holy space of care and protection, watchfulness over you. And then we say, circle me, Lord, keep protection near and danger afar. Circle me, Lord, keep light near and darkness afar. Circle me, Lord, keep peace within, keep evil out. Circle me, Lord, keep hope within, keep doubt without. And then the next one is, circle us, Lord, keep protection near and danger afar. Circle us, Lord, keep light near and darkness afar. Circle us, Lord, keep peace within, keep evil out. Circle us, Lord, keep hope within. Keep doubt without. Amen. God's blessings on you.
may be seated. Now you all see why I, why I treasure Mary Kate so much. And affectionately call her my boss. I affectionately call her my boss because she was the first dean to ever hire me to teach. So she will always affectionately be my boss. So um, Mary Kate spoke to us as a mother. Um, I want to speak to you as Uncle Todd. Um, funny, I was, I was already thinking that because I, I thought this morning of a, of a story um, where, you know, you guys had Dallas last year and we've been quoting Dallas. Um, did, is this on, Funky? Is it okay? Um, just give me one second here. Okay. Um, so, you know, Dallas has been talked about a lot this weekend. So it was, I don't know, this was probably four or five years ago. It was before I'd started writing. And both Richard Foster and Dallas Willard were both encouraging me to start writing. And I just really couldn't do it because, honest to God, in my heart of hearts, I thought writing was what really smart people did, like Dallas or N.T. Wright. And my self-consciousness was I was the kind of person who read smart people and then tried to do something about what they were writing. And so I just literally never thought of myself as a writer. So I was driving Dallas to a hotel or airport or something after a meeting, and he patted me on my thigh and he said, Now, Todd... I want to speak to you avuncturally. That's what I did. Like, what the H-E double toothpicks is avuncular? I had to look it up this morning. I'd looked it up before, but I really didn't know how to spell it. You spell it A-V-U-N-C-U-L-A-R. Avuncular. It means... Sorry, I'm still, I'm still struggling here. It's hard being a... What's that? No, I can't do that. Never mind. Um, So, avuncular, thank you, my friends. Avuncular means to speak suggestively, especially in kindness and geniality, like a loving uncle. So when I asked Alice, what the heck does that mean? He goes, well, I want to speak to you kindly now, suggestively, like a loving uncle might. So I said, okay, Uncle Dallas, go ahead. So um, I was thinking this morning that, you know, lots of you in the, I never thought I would ever say this, uh, but lots of you in this room are young enough to be my kids. You know, I was once the young, hip, 24-year-old church planter. Uh, now I'm the old guy, you know, one of, if not, the, you know, the oldest guy in the room. I don't know, Keith and I'd probably go back and forth somehow, but I don't know. Um, So I just realized this morning, actually for the very first time in my life, that I'm in, if God gives me good health, the last third of my career, my, you know, time on earth, my my followership of Jesus. So I turn 55 next month. If God gives me another 15 years, you know, maybe I'll work till I'm 70. But most of you are in the first third. You're in your first 15-year run. And so that, I say that not only to say that I've been at this a long time, but it, this is shocking, I know, but um, I've, I've been overseeing pastors and church plants and churches since I was 27 or 28 years old. I can't remember. So for 27 or 28 years, I've been overseeing pastors. That, so just have that in the back of your brain. And um, I told you, I think, that it's about 20 years ago that I got on this spiritual formation journey because of uh, issues in my own life. And so I started doing what Mary-Kate was saying, is that I would take 
every year, sort of between Christmas and New Year's, that was kind of my week a year where I would just take silence and solitude. And so um, at this time, I was the, the time I'm thinking of now, I was the president of Vineyard Churches. Our offices are in Anaheim, California. Uh, sorry, our offices were in Anaheim, California. And of course, you know, because I was the president, I had the big corner office with, you know, all windows and everything. And, and so I was sitting there. The offices were closed. So I was sitting there all by myself. It's winter, of course. If you know anything about Southern California, that's our best time of year. Winter's beautiful, clear skies. Uh, if it's been raining, you know, you can see beautiful snow on the mountains and it's clear. And so I was sitting there with my feet up on my desk, you know, just the no one's there. And I'm just wondering, okay, God, here was my big question. What do you want the vineyard to do the next year? You know, because I'm the, I'm the, supposed to be the vision caster. And I'm, so I'm just sitting there meditating, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I heard these words. Become a truly good person. And I thought, that's not a strategic plan. What is that? There's no tactics there. There's no vision. There's no growth goals. You know, what do I do with that? And, and that put me on sort of a different kind of journey that I just want to take five minutes here to tell you how I think ministry works in forming or deforming ways. So I think you're going to want to jot these six things down. Number one, this is the longest one, the hardest to write down. And you don't actually have to get it word for word, but I just have a hunch. This is the kind of thing you guys are going to want to keep in. What's that fancy thing that I don't have that y'all got? A mole skin? Or in your notes or something in your computer, you're probably going to want to keep these. Number one, being in the image of God, we all have a strong desire to use our energy and creativity to be a force for good in the world. Being in the image of God, we all have within us then the strong desire to use our energy and creativity to be a force for good in the world and to have the power or the capacity to actually do it. So being in the image of God, we all have this strong desire to use energy and creativity to be a force for good in the world and to have the power to actually do it. Well, that leads then often to number two, to too much work. And you can hear a theme here between Mary-Kate and I and others. Too much work, too much responsibility, and for most of us pastors, too much empathy. And so think back to the old Cloud and Townsend book, some of you are too young maybe, but boundaries, you know, like... Too much, well, what they were really trying to get at is that we're all, we tend to be pretty empathetic, even if we're not, you know, the world's greatest pastor. There's no way you get into pastoral ministry without being somewhat empathetic. So what happens is, being in the image of God, we have this strong desire to do this, which is good. But we, what, things go wrong when it gets to be too much work, too much feeling of responsibility, too much empathy. And what happens is, number three then, this leads to a kind of emptiness that I think all of you could describe. You might describe yourself losing intellectual or emotional energy. Uh, you, might start to feel, you might start describing what almost feel like out-of-body experiences where you just don't even feel connected to yourself or present to yourself. You, know, you can describe it in, in many different ways, but it leads to a kind of emptiness. Then number four in this progression, that almost always leads to a desire for diversion or entertainment. Because at some point, you just can't face the emptiness any longer. You need something that will make you feel alive. 
And you can just use your own imagination here now and start understanding clergy falling. <laughs> but not just clergy, policemen, brain surgeons. How'd you like to be a brain surgeon? You wake up one morning not feeling so great and you've got to go operate on somebody's brain or a heart surgeon. I mean, talk about too much responsibility, too much work, too much empathy. Any, this can happen to anybody, but since we're talking about clergy here, let's talk about us. It leads to this desire for diversion or entertainment. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly apolitical, and I'm certainly apolitical parties at this point. So this is not a pol- partisan political statement. But I am just fascinated by Bill Clinton's sin. Absolutely fascinated. And always have been. You know, and I, I, if I have any leanings, they tend to be conservative. So I, don't, I wasn't necessarily a big fan of Clinton, but especially because he was so creepy personally. But kind, of in, but kind of in hindsight, he looks to be, have been a pretty good president, huh? It's like the farther we get away from his eight years, he looks like he actually did a pretty solid job for all the personal creepiness. But here's why... Here's why he so fascinates me. Think about it. He wanted to be president of the United States since he was like, what was he? In college. And he was on the lawn at the White House and he shook Kennedy's hand. And in that moment, he had the kind of experience that like Sid was talking about last night or Dale, where he realizes, oh my God, I want to be president of the United States. And he gets there. Come on, he got there. I mean, what are the chances? You know, one in hundreds of millions. He got there. And um, as Rob said earlier, this is an adult crowd, so it has just always fascinated me that you were willing to give up your life's dream for a little sex. I mean, I agree. I, I mean, I like sex as much as anybody. But to give up your life's dream for a little sex, how do you explain that kind of self destructive behavior. And that is self-destructive. If you look up self-destructive in the dictionary, you'll see a picture of he and Monica in the galley of the White House. I mean, that is the definition of self-destructive behavior. Why? Because here's how it goes. Nobody understands me. Nobody knows how hard this job is. Nobody knows what I have to go through. Hillary doesn't like me. She doesn't really satisfy my needs. I have this deep, profound desire for diversion and entertainment. Something that will get my mind off Somalia, off Rwanda, off Newt Gingrich, off my wife who doesn't like me. Something has to distract me here. And that, of course, is what leads to temptation. Temptation has no power over us unless there's a pre-existing desire in us. I, I happen to be writing a book for Thomas Nelson right now on temptation and uh, I was walking out of church the other day, like two Sundays ago. We were walking out of church, again, beautiful Southern California day. And this, this guy in the church comes up behind me and slaps me on the back and says, look, there's temptation right there. And I haven't told my church I'm even writing this book. But he points across the parking lot at this beautiful new Harley. His friend had just got a brand new Harley. He says, look, there's temptation right there. And I'm thinking, not to me. I could care less about a Harley. I mean, I think they're cool to look at. And I got a lot of friends with Harleys. But I have no desire to ride a motorcycle so much less a Harley. So it's not temptation to me. But when, you, when we've got within us this amazing desire for diversion and entertainment, that's what number five leads to temptation. And then number six, it's, that, it's the desire that gets hooked to temptation that ultimately gets hooked to entrapment and to addiction. 
I mean, almost always some pastor sitting there looking at pornography or doing whatever he or she are doing, it's almost always has its roots in a diversion from my pain. But then once you start figuring out that X, Y, or Z medicates your pain, you're toast. You're absolutely toast. Unless, and this is the, what I want to say, and it's the last thing I want to say, unless we somehow break the pattern by becoming a truly good person. And, and, and that, as Mary Kate says, I don't mean that in sort of a legalistic way. I mean it by truly, I mean something that feels more to me like authentic or genuine. I don't mean measuring up to these things. I mean something where our, our inner desires are being reordered. It's disordered or malordered desire that makes us vulnerable to temptation and then entrapment. This is what I think the Bible means when it says, as water reflects the face, so a man's heart reflects the man. And so that morning in my office, when I heard those words, become a truly good person, I started thinking, oh my gosh, I have the careers of people in my hands and I have had my whole life. I've had to make big decisions of you're in, you're out, you're disqualified, you're not. I'll ordain you, I won't. I'll release this church plan, I won't. I realized I was making these really big decisions over people's lives. And this is where a, a verse from, is it, I think Proverbs 4.23 that it just stuck in my mind for decades now. Put everything you have if I were to try to reduce what we've been talking about here these three days in terms of clergy, I would, if I had to reduce it, I'd reduce it to something like this. Put everything you have into the care of your heart, for from it come the issues of life. And so for me, it's put me on this 20-year track of it doesn't mean that I don't grow professionally. I do. I read everything I can. But mostly what I'm conscious of day in and day out, moment by moment over the last 20 years is here's, here's a little thing I say to myself all the time. Keep it personal. Everything's personal. If you ever get called into the boss's office and he starts his comments with this, this isn't personal, but just know that you're about to hear the most personal thing you've ever heard. Everything is personal. So what I've found is that if I'll keep it personal, it allows me to be present to God and others and to keep that personal um, and so it's just sort of shifted my imagination from mere professional growth to becoming the kind of person who could actually act out my call. I'm in. Keith. I think I'm buttoned on the back. Yeah, here we go. There you go. Well, folks, we, we are at the end here. We've had um, quite a time this morning. I, I, let's thank our speakers again. Great collective wisdom this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Rob, Mary-Kate, Todd. Appreciate all the years of uh, wisdom and what we're getting. Man, I, I don't know about you, but um, this has been a lot in just a couple days. We, we've heard from a ton of people, very diverse people, uh, men and women and different types of churches. And I don't know how you bet. I, I, and, and the talk that's gone on, you know, at the breaks and lunch and everything. What a wonderful time. Have you, have you had a good time? That's great. Well, well, this would not have happened uh, in many ways without the man behind the curtain 
The man behind the curtain for those of us on the board is Chris Backert, and I think we should really offer a w thanks to Chris. So That's right. Come on now. Come on, you guys. Come on. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yep. Thanks, Chris. Um, now, before we go, and uh, we have a word of prayer here, I, I can't uh, add a better benediction, so to speak, than the words of Paul uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He, he gives uh, a, a beautiful oratory to Timothy about how to be a good pastor. And the last thing he says in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Timothy, if you want to make it, if you want to make it down the road, he says, watch over your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, for if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let me say that one more time. Watch over your life. You can't watch over your life, my brothers and sisters, unless you know your life. You've got to know yourself. There's a lot, there's a lot to get in that. But it all, he also says, and watch over your doctrine. It doesn't mean all the ten things about what it means to be an evangelical or orthodoxy. He's saying there, watch over your life and those things you really believe. What can you really count on, Timothy? Know your life and know what you can count on. Persevere in those things because if you do, you will deliver yourself. You will deliver your hearers. Spiritual formation is about watching your life and what you really believe. And we've had a lot of great speaking and dialogue about these things. But know this, you, you have to pursue this. It's not something that you cannot be passive in the process of your own formation. You get to participate with the grace of God. You don't sit there and wait for it. You, you participate in it. And, and as we do that, we become different. And your congregation is not going to watch over this for you. You know that now, don't you? A congregation is there because it has needs, and you are the one that, that is to, to meet their needs. You've got to be men and women who, who take these principles and through these talks and say, I'm going to pursue my formation. I'm going to watch over my life and those things I really believe because that's where our deliverance is. It's, it's ultimate deliverance is in God, really, in Jesus, but, but we've got to be a part of that. Does, does that sound good to you? So let's stand here. Let's stand together. And uh, let me offer a word of prayer as we go. Lord, we thank you for these days together. We thank you for the things we've heard, Lord. Thank you for the, the deep, penetrating things that have, that have taken over our minds. Continue to water those seeds that, that um, are, 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 are from you for us, Lord. Please give us that kind of clarity as we go. Thank you for new friendships. Thank you that we're not alone in these, the process of planting churches. Lord, there are others that we've made friends with here. 
So, Lord, as we go, we ask that you would give travel mercies, that you would surround us with your angels in, in heading back to our homes, that we'd have great memories, that we'd have great connections to continue. So we thank you, Lord, for the gift of these days, the gift of these hours. Dismiss us now with your peace and your presence and your power. And we'll be careful to give you the praise, the honor, glory, and majesty that you are due. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everyone together said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Here you go.